Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com before history is written it's played before it's frozen in time it's fought one shift at a time before it's etched in silver it's carved in ice what happens next will last forever The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Fans for our Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is Kevin Smith, your host. Happy to be with you guys again on a late July afternoon morning evening whenever you're listening to this uh late july man that's an exciting time of year it means that training camps are getting underway and this is training camp week so this is this this episode's running on a wednesday and a lot of teams have the report date today and that means we're going to get into some really interesting football talk over the next few weeks as nfl teams begin to take shape and really as coaches enter the center stage so we're going to talk a lot about coaching today on the call sheet. I mean, it is it is a show in large part about coaching. Um, in addition to being the podcast contributor here at FFSN and a writer for the website and also for the Steel Curtain Network, Network, I am the head football coach of Ocean City High School in Ocean City, New Jersey. And, and we're deep into our summer preparation. We actually play a game before the NFL does. Our kickoff, our first game is August 25th, which is creeping up quickly. So we've been at this uh, at the camp element for a while now, and the NFL will do its part starting this week. And when you talk about training camp, it really puts the coaches center stage. All the conversation tends to center on players because teams are going to cut their rosters from 90 some to 50 some. And that's that offers a lot of intrigue. Who makes the team? Who doesn't, et cetera. But what training camp is really about is preparation. And the best coaches make their mark by having the most prepared teams. It's been said that, you know, one of the only times that you should really be nervous in your life is when you're unprepared. 
that if you're prepared, you should be confident. And the goal of the 32 NFL head coaches as they go through the late July and August summer training, the summer training camps, should be to, to have confident football teams when the regular season rolls around. And why, why should they be confident? Because they're prepared. So, so much of the next six weeks is going to be about preparation. And it's going to be fascinating to watch. And the coaches who do it the best will tend to be the most successful. And that brings us to an interesting conversational point, which is coaching trees. So when we look at the NFL and we, and we look at how the 32 head coaches arrived at their positions, what we find is that many of them come from similar influences or backgrounds. And that's been given a term these days. People use the term a coaching tree, in essence, to suggest that, that a, a seed planted by a master coach has now spawned this tree of assistants who have elevated themselves into head coaching roles. And it's debatable as to how much influence a coaching tree really has on the philosophy and performance of the fruit that it spawns, so to speak. So it's, you know, how much as a coach were, were you influenced by somebody that you worked for? How much of their teaching do you implement into the system that you run or the way that you conduct yourself at practice, the, the culture you build, the level of expectation, et cetera. I think for most coaches, you pull from influences in the past and then you mix it with things that you believe in yourself. When I became the head coach at Ocean City, I know that uh, I had spent 15 years as an assistant and, and I drew upon some of the coaches who had helped me when I was a younger coach and then some of the coaches who had coached me when I was a player and I drew upon some of their ideas, whether it be simple things like, hey, I, I really like this drill that I learned uh, when I was 24 years old and, and a, an assistant coach in the de defensive backs. Or maybe it's something broader, such as a philosophy about scheme or preparation or culture, locker room mentality, whatever it, it might be. Um, and, and I mix those things with my own concepts of what I believed were right and wrong and necessary. And I think most head coaches do something similar, but it's undeniable that there have been some distinct influences that have guided the mentality and the practices of many of the 32 NFL coaches. So if we break it down by coaching tree, there are three prominent ones which dominate the NFL landscape today. The most prominent coaching tree in the NFL right now comes through Andy Reid. Andy Reid's coaching tree has been tremendously successful. Current head coaches in the NFL who were once assistants, coordinators, or worked in a significant fashion with Andy Reid include Sean McDermott, Todd Bowles, Doug Peterson, Ron Rivera, John Harbaugh. Those are five really successful coaches, all of whom have deep playoff resumes, uh, guys who, are, who remain successful in the league right now. And that doesn't even include former head coaches like Matt Nagy, Steve Spagnola, Leslie Frazier, Pat Shermer, guys who were, again, influenced by Reed in some capacity, went on to become head coaches. And one of the things that makes Andy Reed's coaching tree so prominent. And I think that has led to the success of the men who served as his assistants who are now head coaches is that 
Andy Reid's a great teacher. When, when you hear these guys talk, guys like Sean McDermott or Doug Peterson, they rave about the degree to which Andy Reid stressed teaching the game of football. Because at the end of the day, that's really what football coaches are. They're teachers. And like any good teacher, the performance of your students, or in this instance, your players, is not a reflection of what you know, you as the coach. It's not a reflection of what you know. It's a reflection of what you can teach them to do. What can you get them to execute well? And one of the things that all of Andy Reid's former assistants have raved about is his ability to teach both scheme and culture to players and coaches alike. That they say that Andy Reid is exceptionally patient, that he has a way of getting to know his players that makes them feel as though he's like a father figure to them. And that he is demanding and holds people accountable without coming off as a taskmaster or somebody who's dictatorial. And that's a, that's a tough balancing act. I've been a teacher for 30 years. I know that it's hard to stay patient with your students and it's hard sometimes not to simply be the hammer. And other times it's, it's hard to be uh, forceful enough to have enough discipline, especially when you like your students and, and you know, they learn, <laughs> they learn your weaknesses and they know what they can get away with, et cetera. So, so Andy Reed, the teacher, right? Just as much as Andy Reed, the football coach seems to be one of the reasons why his coaching tree has, is both significant in its number and significant in its success. Okay. Probably the next most successful coaching tree in the NFL currently is the one spawned by Bill Belichick. Now, there are only two head coaches in the league right now who are Belichick disciples. They are Brian Dayball in New York and Josh McDaniels in Las Vegas. But the the line of coaches, or the list, I should say, of coaches who have been previous head coaches at both the collegiate and NFL level is significant. Nick Saban. We, we forget that Nick Saban was an NFL head coach in Miami. He's now the most successful college coach of the 21st century. He is a Belichick disciple. We have Al Groh, Eric Mangini, Romeo Cornell, Bill O'Brien, Matt Patricia, Brian Flores, all former head coaches, many of whom are still working in the league in some capacity, all of whom were influenced significantly by Bill Belichick. And many of those coaches are defensive-minded. You think Saban made his reputation on the defensive side of the ball, as did Mangini and Cornell and Patricia and Flores, defensive-minded guys. And that makes sense because Bill Belichick was the defensive coordinator under the great Bill Parcells when they were with the New York Giants together in the 1980s, won a couple of Super Bowls. So Belichick, as a a defensive uh, head coach who – passed on his influence to his assistants, totally makes sense. But there's some great offensive minds in there. Brian Dable is one of the best offensive visionaries in the NFL today. Josh McDaniels had a lot of success as, as an assistant, not as much as a head coach, but as an assistant. And then you got guys like Al Groh and Bill O'Brien, significant influence on the offensive side of the ball there as well. So what is the thing that has made the Bill Belichick coaching influence so significant? When you talk to people about where where Bill Belichick's influence is felt most heavily, 
there seems to be a common theme that emerges, and that theme is in scouting, that Bill Belichick is a master of scouting his opponents and finding their weaknesses and probing at them until you can devise a game plan that takes away their strength and accentuates, from your perspective, their weakness. Bill Belichick is said to give assignments to people who interview with him to become a member of his staff. Uh, and he'll, he'll send you away with an assignment that requires about five to six hours of film work, breaking down one play, one play. The man is thorough, if not obsessive. And while his coaching tree has not been as successful from a head coaching standpoint as Andy Reid's has, and that may be because in scouting, there's not really a, a, a distinct formula, right? There's a there, there's a, a way of looking at film that often varies by the people who are doing it in terms of what you're looking for. and But it, there's also a, something that varies in terms of what you do with the information you gather. When you scout an opponent and you gain, you get a list of their tendencies and, and what they like to do, you then have to devise a game plan for how you're going to attack that. And, and that can vary by individual. So, so while Andy Reid seems to have passed on the gift of, of being able to teach the game to a lot of his assistants, the degree to which Bill Belichick has passed on the ability to use the information garnered from scouting into devising successful game plans, that, that seems to be a little bit uh, more of a variance there, right? So then the, the final coaching tree that's have, having a significant influence in the NFL today is the one spawned by Sean McVay. Sean McVay uh, has given rise to four really young and talented head coaches in the NFL right now. Zach Taylor, Matt LaFleur, Kevin O'Connell, uh, Brandon Staley. And, and those guys are uh, individuals who are known for their offense. All individuals who have inherited McVay's offensive philosophy, which is one born out of stretching the field, the call sheet two weeks ago did a big piece on the horizontal stretch game and its impact in football today. And Sean McVay is one of the pioneers in the NFL today of that philosophy. And then the boot and play action game that comes off of that and using the horizontal stretch to create vertical seams, all of that stuff is stuff McVay passed on to his assistants and all those assistants are implementing it in some way, shape or form in their head coaching careers. Right. So, so what's the Sean McVay influence more than anything else? Modern NFL offense. Now, of course, there's many, many other coaches in the NFL and they didn't all come from some direct lineage, some, some direct coaching tree. I mean, Think about, think about Mike Tomlin, who's been in Pittsburgh since 2007. I mean, his biggest influence was Tony Dungy when he was in Tampa Bay. But Tony Dungy's been out of the league for a long, long time. So Mike Tomlin has clearly become sort of his own entity. Uh, Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco, he was, he was most influenced by his father, Mike Shanahan, who, who doesn't have a distinct coaching tree so much as he does a philosophy that Shanahan has inherited. Then you have guys like Frank Reich and Dennis Allen, who are just veterans who have been around the league for a long time and coached in many, many places and, and then eventually got their shot. And they probably uh, incorporated a lot of the various influence that influences that they had into their own system. 
But the guy we're going to talk about real quick, and that is really going to be the focus of part two of today's show, is Arthur Smith in Atlanta. Arthur Smith, third-year head coach, came to the Falcons after a long, being a long-time assistant in Tennessee, where if you if you were to say, like, oh, well, well, what's the coaching tree that Arthur Smith descends from? I mean, Mike Vrabel would seem to be the most immediate influence. But Arthur Smith is an offensive guy, tight end by trade, offensive coordinator in Tennessee. Mike Vrabel's largely a defensive guy. The offensive influences that Arthur Smith came from are old school. I mean, they were throwback guys, right? Arthur Smith worked under Mike Munchak, offensive line coach who stressed big physical uh, football and a, and a downhill run game. Mike Malarkey, former NFL tight end, similar mindset. Think back to Mike Malarkey coordinating the Steelers uh, when they had some of their smash, some of their best running backs, smash mouth football in the early 2000s. But the guy who really got uh, Arthur Smith got started under was Joe Gibbs in Washington. Uh, during Joe Gibbs' second tenure with the Redskins. Not, not, not the original one when, when he had the Hogs, but the early 2000 Joe Gibbs. When Washington was still a team that advocated that old-school smash-mouth football, counter-gap, and the inside zone were two staples of the Joe Gibbs system. And Arthur Smith has brought that style to Atlanta. And what makes it interesting is it's a bit of a it's a bit of a zig as the rest of the NFL is zagging, or it's a zag as they're zigging, whichever chicken and the egg there, whichever comes first. As much of the NFL embraces offense in the 2020s, RPOs, zone reads, the horizontal stretch system, speed in space, all that stuff that you see NFL is trying to duplicate. Arthur Smith is taking a page out of the throwback playbook. They drafted Bijan Robinson, number eight overall, a running back. Running backs tend not to go in the top 10 anymore. And they did it despite having the third best running game in the NFL last year. They doubled down on a strength and they got criticized for it. But at the same time, they appear to be saying, this is our identity. We're going to run the ball. We're going to get, we're going to be big and we're going to be physical and we're going to run the ball and we're going to try and set up the pass off the run. And that's just not the way NFL offenses are operating these days. So what we're going to do on the other side, I'm going to take a quick break right here. And on the other side, we're going to look a little more closely at what Arthur Smith is doing in Atlanta and how the influence of guys like Joe Gibbs and Mike Munchak are factoring into his offensive philosophy. And we're going to do that with a special guest. Fans First Sports Network's Scott Kennedy, who covers the Falcons for FFSN. It'll be an interesting conversation on the other side, so come on back. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. back to the call sheet kevin smith with you and the first part of the show we were talking about coaching trees in the nfl where where are some of today's best coaches uh where are they coming from in terms of their their philosophy where do they learn the game who are their biggest influences and we left off with sort of one of the older coaching trees and by older i, I mean stylistically talking about arthur smith and the falcons Ar- arthur smith coming from uh, the, the joe gibbs school of football and his influences include Russ Grimm and Mike Munchak, Mike Malarkey. And these are, these are guys a little more rooted in smash mouth football. And that, that appears to be the style of football that the Falcons want to play this year. And and we're going to talk about Atlanta now in the second half of the show. And I've got a special guest with me. This is Scott Kennedy from FFSN and the Falcoholic. And really appreciate Scott coming on. Hey, Scott, how are you, man? Uh, I'm doing well, so I uh, appreciate you having me. And yeah, you mentioned that that old school. I am a child of the 80s, so I watched Washington and Joe Gibbs win three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks by beating people up. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no finer way to win a football game than to, than to beat people up. It's really the, sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the game. But obviously, the game's evolved a lot. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about on, on this podcast last week was about how offenses have really moved to a, a horizontal stretch philosophy to sort of with, with all the jet sweeps and the, and the perimeter screens and the outside zone play, things like that, and trying to stretch defenses horizontally. Uh, but there are some teams now that are reverting back to that old school, some more smash mouth style, which is a, a little bit more vertically based and the Falcons appear to be one of those teams. So we're going to get into that in a minute, but before we do, Hey, just tell me about your tell me about your background a little bit. How'd you wind up a Falcons fan? Uh, through osmosis, I uh, I grew up in uh, North Metro Atlanta, so um, my first real memories of the the team were 1980, and they were a 12 and four team and had beaten the Eagles in the regular season, and then they ended up losing after blowing a 14 point lead to the Dallas Cowboys in the first round of the playoffs. I didn't realize that was going to be a lifestyle decision for them for the next 40 <laughs> years of my life. Um, but yeah, so just, just growing up here and, um, you know, 
as I worked in sports media for through the years, I went to I went to a big SEC school, got into recruiting. I was director of scouting at at, at scout.com for uh, for years. So I did some NFL draft and whatnot. But I became a fan of the process itself. So I'm a big NFL draft guy as well, because, you know, if you're a Falcons fan in the 80s, you better be looking at the draft or in other teams because they had one winning season in the 1980s. That was 1980. So it was uh, you became a fan of the game. And like I said, through through local, because nobody just picked the Falcons in the 80s because, hey, I really like that team. You know, no, that, that's not how it worked. <laughs> that right, was the yeah. 49ers and the Cowboys back in the day. Sure. I mean, that's how I became a Steelers fan. I mean, I'm probably a little bit older than you. I, I, I my first the first football game I ever remember seeing was Super Bowl 10, which I guess was 1976 and 77. And uh I became a lifelong Steelers fan as a, I, I don't know if you can be a front runner at six. I think every, every six year old is a front runner, but <laughs> we're close. Cause the first game I really remember was the, the Ram Steelers Super Bowl. Okay. So that was yeah, probably 78, 79, right in there. Right, right, right. Uh, would you, let, let me ask you this. Um, I have a couple good Buffalo Bills fans, uh, friends, I should say, or who are Buffalo Bills fans. And, and they fully embrace the notion that the Bills are a tortured fan base. <laughs> Is it fair to say that the Falcons are are as well or, or not so much? Yeah, it, it's nice, though, because the Bills in Buffalo, you got the Sabres and the Bills. In Atlanta, the I feel like Atlanta has a kinship with the Buffalo Bills because of the Braves. You know, the Braves did win one, but, you know, who else went to the playoffs 15 straight years and only come away with one championship? That was pretty fairly early on. So I feel like there is a kinship with there. But that said, I was actually born in Cleveland, in, in Akron, Ohio, you know, suburb of, of Cleveland, not too far from Pittsburgh. So I was a Cleveland-born Atlanta sports fan. You are not going to find a more cynical SOB than this guy right here. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned that one championship from yeah, the Atlanta Braves. The only way that happened was how? Well, they had to play a Cleveland team to do it. They beat the Indians in 95, and, you know, hell had to freeze over for one of those two teams. And they're like, wait a minute, how did these both get here? They're not supposed to win games. So long, tortured sports fan, yes. I'm, I'm pretty cynical when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to sports. My team's never going to win. We're never going to get that guy, and they're just going to choke it away. So I've come by that honestly. Well, I, I admire the fact that you've stuck with, with your team, and there's something <laughs> noble about that uh, to, you know, to sort of – Grin and bear it for, for a long time. And, and that may, means when, when you win it, it'll be all, all that much sweeter. So one more quick question before we get into the, uh, the, current, the current topic. But um, I always like asking people this. What, what, who's your favorite all-time Falcon? If you had to pick Jesse one. Tuggle. Favorite, favorite Atlanta Falcon. That one's easy. Jesse Tuggle. Um, he saw some real – he was a – I'm pretty sure he was an undrafted free agent. I think he was a walk-on at Florida at, at uh, Valdosta State. And then goes and, you know, leaves the NFL in tackles several years. He's 5'11", 5'10", 220, 230. Just a tackling machine. For me, he lived through some of the dark days, but then got to finally towards the end of his career, got to see some of the the really good times, including that 98 team that was 14-2. and two. Um, Just still lives here locally in Atlanta, but he's – Jesse Tuggle is easily my all-time favorite Atlanta Falcon. Just for – you That's know, awesome. it, it's not easy – being an Atlanta Falcon for a long time and he, he did it and he, he was nothing but class for a, a, he was a really good player for a really long time. And the really great Atlanta Falcons players never got the type of recognition they deserve because teams like the Steelers 
are winning Super Bowls and putting guys in the Hall of Fame over and over and over again. So, you know, to be an Atlanta Falcon for that long, um, guys like him, I just, they, they hold us a, a special place in Falcons lore. I can tell you were a, a child of the 80s because you picked a linebacker, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. it, it was linebackers. I remember and when linebackers and running backs were cool. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now everybody likes quarterbacks and wide receivers, you know? So it was, but, it, but back in the day, I mean, my favorite, my favorite stealer was Jack Lambert. So, so it was, uh, it was uh, a, tra- it speaks to the transition of the game for sure. But all right, let's talk about running backs a little bit because Atlanta made some some uh, news during the draft when they took B. John Robinson uh, with the number eight overall pick. And and this is a Falcons team that, that finished third in the NFL in rushing yards last season. And the strength of their offense seemed to be their, their rushing attack. Uh, and, they you know, they got some heat for that. Right. One, because people think that the running back position has been devalued Two because they already had a thousand yard rusher, a rookie running back in their in their lineup and. Some people thought, well, Robinson's great, but they have other needs elsewhere. What were your thoughts on the Robinson pick? Uh, it wasn't my number one pick, but I, I wasn't – the the past couple of drafts, I was more adamantly against the guys they ended up taking for some of the reasons you explain. Um, so two years ago, because this is Terry, this was Terry Fontenot's third draft. He came over from the New Orleans Saints. Two years ago, I was like, why are you taking uh, a receiver? And it was Kyle Pitts, you know, a tight end at that. When your offensive line's a disaster, your defense is a disaster, and your quarterback is a 35-year-old guy on the back end of his career. Um, when Justin in, in a quarterback-rich draft, the next year another wide receiver comes along. I'm like, you're still not ready to take advantage of a wide receiver. This year for me was a little different because the draft itself was a little different. There wasn't they, they still haven't had the ability to go out and get that that fire-breathing edge. That's that's what they're really, really need. It wasn't there at number four when Kyle Pitts was there when they took him. It wasn't there at number eight uh, when they took Drake London. It wasn't there at number eight when they took Bijan Robinson. Now, I probably in that spot would have gone with um, with Carter, who ended up going to the Eagles, I think, at nine, one spot later, two spots later. For all the reasons you talked about, for positional value, for for loading up that defense. But there's character concerns you don't know all of the answers there and when you're talking about arguably the best player in the draft Bijan Robinson's name came up quite a lot yeah but he's a running back they're going to use him in the, as a slot receiver they're going to use him all over the place so if you just think of well this is a guy who's going to get 350 touches as a rookie and could end up being a, a pro bowler with a with a coach that wants to run the ball and knows how to use him and I don't have to run him into the ground because I've got Tyler Algier there. It was a fairly easy pick to wrap your head around. Yeah, th- this makes sense. Uh, could they have used another wide receiver? Sure. But there wasn't really another great wide receiver in this class. Good thing they took you know took one with the number eight class. Could they have used a quarterback? Maybe. They seem pretty happy with Desmond Ritter. That's for sure. But the quarterbacks were gone. The next quarterback doesn't go until the second round. So the worst thing you can do is reach for a guy. Uh, Lucas Van Ness is someone I will I will keep an eye on also as a player that would have fit a need that could have gone that high. And then Jalen Carter are the two players that I, I was really interested in in that spot. But taking arguably the best player in the draft at number eight makes some sense. When you talk about Atlanta's needs, it feels as though whomever they took was going to 
undergo some criticism, right? If you take Van Ness there, people are going to say, oh, that's too high. He's a project. It was a stretch. Take, He's not even a starter at Iowa. That was a lead. Right. So, yeah. You um, take Carter. There's, like you said, there's some, there's some, maybe some character concerns. No, nobody doubts him as a player. But that's Christian the thing that's interesting Dallas about Rob. The corner would have made some sense there, but he ends up falling down, you know, into the late teens. Yeah. And nobody wanted to trade up. You know, nobody it's was it, it, there. There wasn't anybody there. We we're like, okay, we really want to trade up and go get that guy because the Falcons could have absolutely trade down. It would have been nice to get two of those guys in the twenty to thirty range if you were able to trade down out of that eight spot. But I don't. I don't think they were. I don't think that was really an option either. So why not get Bijan Robinson, who could be a fifteen hundred yards from scrimmage, ten touchdown guy for this team right away? Okay, I can. I can live with that. Right. And that's why I really like the pick. I, I wrote an article for FS, FFSN that was out the other day in which I really talked about uh, how I'm a big believer that if in the absence of options that are either more attractive or that you're more comfortable with, doubling down on a strength is a smart move. Because the one thing I like that the Falcons have and that I'm not sure anybody else in the division really does is that the Falcons have a true identity. Like when, when it's the fourth quarter of a close football game, Atlanta knows what they're going to lean into on offense. And uh, when you think about the Panthers, right, they've got a rookie quarterback and you're not really sure how things are going to play out with them just yet. And a new head coach. And a new head coach, right? Good point. You've got the Saints and the Buccaneers, both of whom have brought in veteran quarterbacks who have been traditionally inconsistent. I mean, Derek Carr's a better quarterback than Baker Mayfield. But both of those guys are, are prone to making big mistakes in the fourth quarter. They could win you some games. They could lose you some games. But if you're Atlanta, you 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 can essentially say like we know how we're going to uh, approach our game plan, and for me in close football games that that matters a lot. So I like the idea of of doubling down. I think it fits with what Arthur Smith's trying to do. So quick quick transitional question to Arthur Smith: uh, What have you thought of, of him so far? He's about to enter his third year. Uh, I mean, he's he's as I just said established an identity in Atlanta. But are you, are you pleased so far with the progress? I am. I think they've worked wonders the last two years with arguably the worst roster in football. Uh, you know, if you look at it, look at any of the rankings, they, they, they would rank 31, 32. Uh, they were playing with $85 million in dead cap money last year. So that was 40% of their available roster. And they that's won seven a, games. That's a big number. That's a big yeah. number. Eight, it was eight. It was eighty-four million dollars in dead cap money, and they won. They won seven games. I went through it, and I bet. I bet before the season started, I said, "I bet these guys are really only f- favored to win two games." And I think it ended up being two. I was like, two and fifteen, y'all. It's not out of the question. They won seven the year before when they nobody expected them to, and then winning seven with that team last year was a great job. Now Arthur Smith has to prove. Can I do more than just get the best out of a bunch of scrap heap pulls? It, it, he came from the Titans. One of the guys in the front office came from the Bears. I've used this joke a zillion times. They were going to war with a couple of veterans, a couple of rookies, and then a bunch of guys pulled off the waiver wire of the Bears and the Titans. It was it was a running joke that that's what they were doing. And they, they did it. They competed. And you mentioned established identity. It didn't have to be the fourth quarter. I said at some point during the first half, Arthur Smith hit the F it button. We're going to run it down your damn throat. And they did. They could. Um, Desmond Ritter, I think, has the ability to be a more effective quarterback than Marcus Mariota. That's not a huge statement there. Uh, 
and, and what would the national narrative be right now if Taylor Heineke was the starting quarterback, a veteran who has had some success, who the Falcons are choosing Desmond Ritter over Heineke as you are the backup. But it's it's incredible to me the amount of disrespect Desmond Ritter is getting when it's he's really a question mark. It's like, why, why is everybody just it's like, oh, there's questions at quarterback, and we know the answer. He stinks. He's awful. Why? He, he, did, he did pretty good last year. Uh, in his in his four starts, he was he was okay. He wasn't god awful. So I think the, I think the the short answer to that question is uh, with fantasy football, with with everybody uh, on the internet wanting to rate quarter, you know, do their top their top ten list and these types of things. Statistics are given so much weight, and I, you know, watching the Steelers, right? Kenny Pickett. Uh, did not put up great statistics last year. He had he had more interceptions than he did touchdowns. But the Steelers went seven and two over their final nine games with him mm-hmm. at quarterback, and and he had he had a uh, an intangible as a uh, as a leader and as a clutch guy in the fourth quarter that belies the, the statistics. And he just got better as as things went. And the one thing you look about uh, you think about Desmond Ritter and you think back to his college career is that guy won. Yeah, that guy won at Cincinnati. And granted, he only started four games in Atlanta last year, and that sample size mm-hmm. is too small to draw any definitive conclusions. But he feels but like a guy. people still are doing it. That, that's that? my quote. But people are still drawing definitive conclusions. It's like yeah. they'll put – that you, you read these rankings and they'll put, well, they have questions at quarterback. He's 32nd. Well, you, you seem to have the answer already. You know, So that that's the part that I don't quite understand. I'm absolutely willing to say – the Falcons have a question, a quarterback, but I was encouraged. But what I saw last year, I don't automatically think that this is a 27th ranked team. And that's where I see these guys. I'm like, they were better than that last year. And we can get into players and personnel all you want to across the board. This roster is so much better. That roster was a disaster last year and they won seven games. Yeah, they've actually got competent NFL professionals, and again, not just guys they pulled off the Titans waiver wire this year. Well, the recipe that Arthur Smith seems to be cooking up is perfect for a guy like Ritter because as he learns the NFL game more, as he uh, undergoes what, what will inevitably, inevitably be struggles trying to diagnose coverage and all the things that rookies run into, I mean, Pickett ran into it in Pittsburgh. Uh, the big criticism of Ritter coming out of college was that Alabama in that national championship game showed him or in that playoff game, I should say showed him uh, a bunch of looks that he wasn't ready for and that his learning curve is going to be big. But if you're going to, if you're going to go through that type of a learning curve on the job, there's no better situation to do it in than one that's a ball control offense with a great run game. So I think that they, that they can set him up for success. Alabama's made a lot of good quarterbacks look bad. He's (laughs) not the only one. And if I'm lining up Alabama and Cincinnati, for a starting 22, how many Cincinnati guys are on there? Any? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Any of them? Oh, wow. Yeah. Alabama made them. Georgia made this guy on TCU look bad. He must not be very good. Come on, man. Yeah. We're talking levels here. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what is a what is a quarterback's best friend that running game? My goodness. You know, like you're saying, if I know I can get the ball quickly to even even if it's not just turn around and handing it to Tyler Algier, Bijan Robinson, hitting those guys out of the backfield, quick slants. I got a six five receiver and a six six tight end with a pterodactyl wingspan that'll be back. Because Ritter hasn't even played with Kyle Pitts yet. Pitts was out the second half of he got hurt in week eleven after a 
a tackle from safety Eddie Jackson of the Chicago Bears that would have been an illegal hit anywhere else on the field, but somehow in the open field, you're allowed to hit guys from behind in the knees. Um, end of the season. So again, Ritter was Ritter was fine. And that's all he needs to be for this team. If he is a okay, I don't know how much baseball you watch, but if he is an average war guy, a zero is a team that'll make the playoffs just because yeah. everything around him has gotten so much better in the last 12 months. Okay, so that's a, that's a good uh, a good place for us to go next and I'll I'll kind of uh, wrap it up with this with this question here. I think the Falcons are going to win the NFC South. And I do because they might not have the most complete roster, but I again I like their style of play and I like Arthur Smith as a head coach and I think that they have built upon what they started last year while all three other teams are in a state of transition. Do you share my optimism? I think it'll be, I think they'll be in it for sure. Um, you know, they were all in it last year. I, I saw something, some, so FFSN tried to bait us into like a big debate and Carolina Panthers guy was like, they were one game away from winning the division. I was like, dude, everybody was one game away from winning the division. You know, at right. eight and nine won the division. The other three teams were seven and 10. Um, but again, you might be surprised to find out that despite Marcus Mariota quarterback and Desmond Ritter the last four, the Falcons had a top 15 scoring offense. That surprised me, and I watched every game, but they were 15th. A field goal put them in the top 10. Is this team a field goal better than they were last year? Now, on defense, my goodness, the upgrades they have done. They have drafted almost every player, and I think, I think every player on the Falcons' offense was a draft pick of their starters. When is the last time that happened? They've drafted an offense. They went out and bought themselves a defense. So they bring in big guys, David Onyemata, Calais Campbell. They got Jesse Bates out of uh, out of Cincinnati. They take a flyer. Detroit's paying half the bill on Jeff Okuda. Now, Jeff Okuda hasn't lived up to his number three overall pick, but he's an upgrade on what the Falcons have had in the last two years. They get Caden Ellis at linebacker, who can rush from all over the place, who had seven sacks in 11 games with the Saints. Seven sacks would have led the team last year. And they're bringing these guys in. So there's reason for optimism for the Falcons fans. One, Kyle Pitts is 22 years old. Yesterday was Drake London's birthday. He's 22 years old. Bijan Robinson is 21 years old. And I got a, a, a brand new bunch of fresh faces on defense with some of Arthur Blank's money. And I know that he's willing to spend when he's got it. They haven't had it the last two years. They did this year. Yeah, well, you're making a good case for him. Uh, if it, it, it should and, be. It should be it, the team itself. I was preaching doom and gloom last year. Everybody, yeah. pump your brakes, Arthur. They they're playing with one hand tied behind their back, and then they won seven games. Wow, the Jesse Shocked Bates is huge. Most I of it was the improvement on the offensive the defensive lines with guys they already had. That's coaching. Yeah, I mean, I watched Jesse Bates play the Steelers twice a year for the last four or five years, and he's one of the best safeties in the league. So that was a, a steal to bring him in. Uh, we're looking forward to it here because uh, they were playing with Eric Harris, uh, a journeyman guy on a veteran minimum um, for, you know, next to, you know, Richie Grant played some who was now in his third year. And hopefully he took a pretty good leap. He didn't play a whole lot as a rookie, played a, a much better as a as a second year guy. And now as a third year guy, and it's like Jesse Bates are hoping, hey, this can be a pretty good young tandem. Because Jesse Bates is still a young guy. I think they're both 26. Yeah, um, a good young tandem for the next five years to for the back end of that defense, and then AJ Terrell at corner is still really, really good. And 
oh my goodness, there's actual people besides Grady Jarrett. One of my favorite clips, I could show it to you sometime. Two years ago, there's a clip where Grady Jarrett was mic'd up. He's got three guys on him and he's, you know, expletive. Y'all don't have anybody else to block? No, we don't. (laughs) We don't have anybody else to block, Grady. You're it. Not anymore. He's got some help and it, it should be a lot more fun to watch the games instead of just trying to hang on until the very end and keep it close, run the score down, you know, keep grind out possessions, keep the score low and let young way kick a field goal at the end. It worked, but it wasn't the most exciting brand of football. This should be a much, a much more fun team to watch this year. Nice. Nice. But what, what else you got going on uh, uh, over there at the, the Falcoholic? Are you guys, uh, you, you, you pushing anything these days? You getting ready for training camp? Well, Falcoholic is SB Nation. I don't work with those guys. Oh, that's right. Um, I forgot. But about uh, that. that's I'm right. heading to uh, lots of respect for them. I run into them. I'll, I'll see uh, I'll see Kevin and maybe see Dave down at training camp. Training camp opens for the veterans on Thursday. Um, so I'll be down there Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and probably run into some of those guys. But Camp here. Let's see how healthy everybody is. You don't learn a ton from camp, you know, until they start going against people that aren't on the same team as them. Um, but, you know, I want to see how Kyle Pitts is moving around. I want to see how, what, what does Desmond Ritter's arm look like? Um, you know, we've seen it, but again, now he's the guy uh, and, and see how he's gelling with some of those receivers and then see how some of those, those new faces on defense start looking together. Cause it's going to take some time with a new defensive coordinator and all those new faces to try and be the best they possibly can be, but they've been awful the last two years. The bar's been set so low that there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, all right, that's a great place to end it on. I'm optimistic. Uh, Scott sounds encouraged, and that sounds like a great thing for Atlanta fans. Uh, so that we're going to wrap it right there. I'm going to be. I'm going to head to training camp myself next week out in the Trobe, Pennsylvania, to see the Steelers. And and real football is right around the corner, everybody. So I'm sure. Uh, We're all geeked up for America's greatest game. So for Kevin Smith, uh, Scott Kennedy, everybody at FFSN, thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Call Sheet. Take care, everybody.